Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories, hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stupski, Alex Welsh, and Brad King. Here on episode 28, the gearheads are honored to spend some time with a man who has spent 50 years at the helm of street rotting and continues to guide it into the future, Mr. Brian Brennan. Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. And I'm Brian Brennan, the network director at the Motor Trend Group, which means I work with Street Rider, Classic Trucks Magazines, Magazine, Chevy High Performance, and Vet Magazines. Holy moly. See, that <laughs> again, as we said earlier, come, I'll tell you what, if somebody comes up with an anagram for that, one of our listeners, I'll send you a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> hey, a pleasure to have you on, sir. We have uh, been looking forward to this for some time. Yeah, not just tonight, trying to get Skype working, but uh, uh, no, uh, Brian Brian told me about this a, a little while ago, and uh, I'm more than excited to do this because, frankly, podcasts, and I know you guys are well aware of this, but podcasts are very, very popular, and they're just going to continue to become more popular, even to the point to where in the future I'll be doing my own podcast, and uh, if if you don't mind me just giving the name out, um, it's, uh, you know, Barn Finds with Brian Brennan, and it's going to really be historical things that we couldn't deal with in the magazine because the magazine doesn't have the space and the magazine format on, online doesn't allow us to do this. So it's going to be more informal what you folks are doing, which I think is great. I think this format is exactly what the average hot rodder would love to be listening to if he's out working in the garage because he can come in and come in, you know, come in and come out, phase in, phase out, and yet he can still keep working. And the whole fun thing is, is he's going to get some information he'd never get in a magazine story. And, and that's what this is all about. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm running off at the mouth here. So you guys, please, please stop me and jump in and ask me some questions. No, I don't no, want to stop that was you well after said. that. I, I want to ask you, can <laughs> yeah, you cut that, was that out and use that for our ads? That was absolutely <laughs> perfect. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> Greatest testimonial ever. Thank you. Yeah, we, we've been trying to keep this really kind of free form because it, we, we always saw it more of like as a, a bench racing session than a typical, you know, stodgy interview. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, those are fun to have. But um, lately it's kind of grown to this whole thing where we're trying to get as much added value as we can and try to not only entertain, but kind of educate our listeners. And I really hope that's working out. The uh, The feedback we've gotten so far has been absolutely fantastic. Well, I think you're, you're spot on. In the magazine business, and, and please forgive me, I, I need to say in the magazine business, which is not only print but also electronic, there's four steps that we go through. We try to inform, educate, participate, and report. And if we can do that, if we can participate in the hobby, report on the hobby, entertain with the information we bring back, and educate with the information we bring back, then we've done a home run. And, and the one thing that I found through all of this, and 
Uh, I just happened to post a thing on my, my personal Facebook page this week about it's been 10 years since the passing of Little John. And one of the things that came out of all of this in talking to a number of guys who I hadn't spoken to in ages was that the cars are great. We all love the cars. We all want to play with them. We all get that. But it's the friends that we make while we're doing all of this, which is really at the heart and soul of all of this. And I don't know how many times you guys have been to an event, but I know that I'll get there by hook or by crook. And 10 minutes later, I'm meeting up with guys I haven't seen in a, since last year at this time. And the next thing you know, we don't even miss a beat in our conversations. And it's all because it's about the people. And I, and I think what you're doing with these podcasts is so important because it's really about the people. It lets, it lets you as the host speak to me as a guest, and then we can talk about things that are fun. And now all of a sudden your listener feels like he's part of the conversation and, and he's going to get information he would have never gotten from a magazine article or a website or whatever. So uh, I think podcasts have, haven't even scratched the surface yet. I think this is really a big time direction that it's going in and primarily because you don't, you don't listen to it once. You can listen to 10 minutes of it and then put it away and come back and listen to 20 minutes of it. And three months from now, be sitting around the, the garage with a couple of guys going, did you listen to what that idiot Brennan said about? And then we're off to the race. <laughs> now, you were, you were talking about uh, John Butera. I, I, had some, I, I did some work with John Butera, um, did some pinstriping for him. Sure. And uh, sure. <clears throat> so... I was I was telling telling uh, Mr. Stubsky earlier one of my uh, one of my Butera stories. Did you, you get any good Butera stories with the interaction you've had with him over the years? Oh, it, the funny you know this is what's really interesting when people go, "Wow, you've got the greatest job in the world." Every weekend you can go to a rod run. Well, that's the problem. Every weekend I'm somewhere and I have no life. Well, what happens is. Little John literally lived a few miles away for most of the time he was here in Southern California. And so I saw Little John a lot. And many of my stories that I tell, I realize people find them interesting, but to me they really weren't stories. They were just happenings. It's just what happened. I would go over to Little John's house in the morning on the, in the way to work, and John would be sitting there. And we'd be looking at his CNC machine that he had in the garage, and the guy would be over there servicing the machine, and he'd come back to Little John and say, how did you make this orb, a round ball out of billet aluminum? And John would say, well, Guido made it. And, of course, Guido was the name of his, his CNC machine. And the guy who works for the company that made this frickin' machine would tell Little John, but the machine can't do that. And Little John would go, be quiet. Guido doesn't know he can't do that. And you would just sit there and you'd laugh and you'd go about your business. But those were the kind of things that would happen. And little John could be extremely benevolent and nice and friendly, or he could be 180 degrees the other way. <laughs> and and the, 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 John could be a handful. Okay. And I'm not speaking out of school or anything like that. I mean, if you knew little John, you knew this. But you picked up right away, he didn't suffer fools easily. And 
if you brought something to the table, I don't care if you were just a humdrum magazine guy like myself that could barely snap the shutter on a camera and, and put seven words together, at least if you brought something to the table and you tried, you were cool. Everything was great. But if you came into his garage and you tried to tell him, well, this is how I did it, you were going to get smacked up the side of your head and you were going to end up on a leukemia board. I mean, it was, you just didn't do that, you know? So, um, I mean, I drove across country a couple of times with little John and then up and down the coast here in California, back to Andy's picnic and back once with him. And he, he was, there are different types of hot rodders when it comes to driving. Some guys, drive 55 miles an hour and they got to stop every two hours and, and on and on and on. And then there's guys like me who, boy, I get inside the car and my ears go back and I don't stop until I run out of gas or I'm there. Well, that's the way little John was. And he loved to drive at night. He thought driving at night was absolutely the best because there was less traffic. It was cooler. Uh, there was a lot of things that just made it better. And then we'd pull into the hotel at, uh, you know, nine, ten, eleven o'clock at night, and sleep till noon the next day. Get up, have a meal, get the car squared away, and get back on the road, and then drive in the afternoon and then the evening again. And and he just functioned a little bit differently than everyone else. But if you could get on his time zone, I mean, it was great. It it was just absolutely great. Um, you know, I I really enjoyed hanging around with them. People liked Little John, or they respected Little John because he had a—he was tremendously creative. Uh, he was tremendously talented at fabricating. But the first thing Little John would tell you is, "I have no clue how to do this." He never tried to, you know, smoke you with mirrors and whatnot. Uh, he was very upfront about stuff, and I think that was one of the things a lot of guys enjoyed. On my post, if you saw the post that I did on my personal Facebook page. There's a picture of his garage, and that literally was how his garage looked uh, during his last few months. And it had his projects that he was working on for Harley Davidson in one corner, and it had his hot rod stuff in the other. The reason little John was standing there kind of watching was he didn't know how to do the stuff the other guys were doing. And so they were all working away. And, I'm, and, of course, you can see where I am. I'm out in the driveway making sure I don't touch anything and get in trouble. And little John would be at the garage entrance, and he might have a cup of coffee in his hand, and he'd be telling a story from drag racing. And he used to love to tell stories about drag racing and all of that sort of stuff. Because, as you know, he built numerous uh, funny car and dragster chassis long before he got into the hot rod stuff. But he would invite guys over who were better at wiring. They were better at plumbing. They were better at whatever it might have been. Like you saw Eric Vons in the photos, and he did, he pieced the wheels together for Little John. I mean, Little John made those last four wheels on the CNC machine, which, by the way, it took two weeks for each half of each wheel. So if you start doing the math, you realize there's about four months' worth of CNC time to make those four wheels, which came out as two-piece and then Vaughn made sure that uh, they were grooved, and then the O-ring, and then put together, and all of that sort of thing. Um, so it was, he was amazing with a computer, self-taught. 
never took a computer class in his life. He just bought computers, turned them on, sat there in front of them, got a program, and then learned how to use it literally by trial and error. Um, I mean, I, I used to watch him and on the computer, and I'd go, when did you learn this program? And he goes, oh, right about now. And he would just <laughs> sit there, and he would hit buttons. And it was, it was like it was intuitive to him. And it was just staggering. And then he would run out in the garage. He'd program Guido. Guido would start making the part. And you could always tell when something went wrong with the part because there would be this this profanity and then this loud bang crash. And the part would go sailing across the garage into the, into the trash bin. In fact, I'll never forget one time Bobby Alloway was over there. And Bobby's being – Bobby's a – pretty fair hot rod builder in his own right. I mean, he, yeah, he, can, he can stand he's, he's all right. yeah, he can stand toe-to-toe <laughs> with anyone. Well, he's, he's being real quiet, you know, because he's the boy from Tennessee, and he's the visitor, and, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And he's looking in the scrap bin where all this aluminum stuff is, all the rejects, and he pulls out a steering wheel, which, by your standards, my standards, Little John's standards, was fantastic. But there was something that little John didn't like, so he threw it away. Well, as we're all getting ready to leave, John goes, what are you doing with that? And he goes, well, I was hoping you'd let me take this piece of aluminum, you know, the steering wheel. He says, I could use it. And John grabs it out of Bobby's hands, flings it across the garage back at the, the aluminum bin section and says, I told you that was trash. Leave it there. If you wanted the goddamn steering wheel, I'll make one for you, but it'll be right. You know, and so Bobby's there with his eyes wide open and doesn't know what to do. Week later, here comes this beautiful steering wheel, and Bobby still has it to this day. So it was stuff like that. And uh, and, and little John, I'm sure most guys know that little John, or at least they should know, he started the whole billet craze back in roughly, what, 1980 or whenever all of that got going. And the first part was an aluminum rearview mirror that he made for Boyd to put in one of the Vern Luce cars. And it, was, it must have been the original car then. And it was Pete and Jake, mostly Pete Shaporis, who saw the part and asked Boyd, hey, would you mind if we made that? And at the time, Boyd said, no, nah, Little John made this. So they asked Little John and Little John goes, no, nah, go ahead. You know, I don't want to do that. Well, they made this little mirror. And I did a little one-page story on it, and the sucker took off. And the rest, as they say, is history. I mean, Little John started making, he made a dozen sets of aluminum wheels for Boyd. And Boyd asked Little John, he said, well, do you want to go in on this or whatever, whatever? And Little John says, you're out of your freaking mind. Pay me what you owe me for these wheels, because no one in their right mind is going to buy a set of these wheels. And, well, we won't even go there as far no. as the feel thing. But, you know, it, it's, it's that kind of stuff. And, it, and we always come back to people's stories. Um, it's probably reasonably well documented that little John and Boyd had an off-again, on-again relationship where they were always yelling and fighting. And so finally, the last few years, five years or so, they didn't speak. Not at all. And... Um, in fact, Little John pretty much had that relationship with a lot of people toward the end. And on that last drive across country, I remember him and I broken down out in the desert. And he's working on the car and we're talking. 
And I said, you know, we're going to meet up with Rizzio and Cub Barnett and whatnot, and then we'll drive into Good Guys Indy. And he says, you know, I haven't spoken to Andy in, and I'm going to say 10 years, but it, it was something like that. It was a long time. And I said, why not? He says, well, something happened, and we fought, didn't get along, and that was that. I said, well, why don't you put an end to all of that and talk? And he, and of course, little John's first reaction was no and this and that and the other thing. And a little while later, he says, if you can get Andy off to the side, he says, I'd like to talk to him and clear the water up. And, uh, and well, we got to Indy and we did whatever it is we were going to do and got squared away. And I'll never forget out at the back of the, uh, the hotel, it was called the Adams Mark. And that was the headquarters hotel in Indy that good guys used. And I told, uh, I, I asked uh, uh, Brizio, I, you know, Andy, I said, hey, wait here a second. I got someone that wants to talk to you. Just hang on. And he says, okay. And I went over and I got little John and I drug him over. And he, when they come around the corner, their eyes meet. And I thought, oh, shit. You know, this is not a good idea. Um, <laughs> they started talking and it was perfectly peaceful from the get-go. And I just turned around and walked away. I have no idea what they said, but all I know, they were the best buddies when that, that weekend ended. And so that was good. And, um, about a month before little John died, you know, little John and Boyd died fairly close together. I mean, it was literally within a week or so. And, um, John, I was over at Boyd's and Boyd said, would you do me a favor and give this card to little John? I said, sure, no problem. So I go over to little John's a day later and I go, Hey, little, um, Boyd gave me this to give to you. Now everyone knew little John was sick at this time and little John opened the card up and he couldn't read it because toward the end he was having a very difficult time with sometimes he was real good. And then other times he had a very difficult time with speech patterns or reading. And so he asked me to read the card. So I did. And it was just amazing. The transition <clears throat> it was, it, to, the, to this day, to this day, it still tears me up. It's been 10 years. And yep. while I, yeah. I won't go into what was actually in the card, it was really fantastic to see those two guys clean everything up, make up, and realize it was about the guys and not the cars. Because when those two worked together, I mean, it was, it was oil and water, man. I mean, they just, they went nuts, you know, they just didn't get along. But in the end, they, they finally made up and it was just great. And then little John did that with a number of other people and a couple of others. I had a chance to be involved with it and, and it worked out really, really well. And, um, you know, when, when, Little passed away. Unfortunately, the day that he passed away, I had to be back at the Detroit Autorama. So, you know, I wasn't there for the funeral or whatever. But uh, but when Boyd had his funeral and he, he passed away, I believe, first, um, you know, that was a huge deal. You know, and everybody from all over the country came in. And, you know, it was a big deal. And, and there was a lot of good things that were said. But one of the things that came out of this is how many guys realized both of these guys tried to patch things up with a lot of people they just knew it was coming you know the end was coming and and they had to patch it up and so that you know that there proved to me 
that it's more about the guys or the people than it is about the car. And uh, uh, I'm starting to see that happening again with some older hot rodders. I mean, I remember when Lobeck passed away, and I spoke to him the week that he passed away. And the first thing when I got on the phone with him, which was very difficult, as you could imagine, because he knew he was going, it was that, you know, Brian, you know, you and I used to have some arguments about this, that, and the other thing. And of course, I'd say, no, we didn't have any arguments. You were just an asshole, and I knew that. And he'd laugh. <laughs> you know, we would go on and whatnot, but you could just tell that he was ready to make good on a few things. And, and so that was good. And, um, you know, and, and it's, there's a couple of other guys who have passed away, you know, since then. And, and of course, you know, we lost a great one in Pete Shapouris here a little bit ago, and which caught everyone off guard. And yeah. he was just a tremendous friend to everybody. And I mean, he was, in fact, the best Pete Shapora story that I could ever was the time that he and I there was himself and Pete Eastwood they were driving in the California kid and then there was Jake Jacobs who was in his coupe and there was Jim Ewing and myself in Jim's coupe and we were driving back to the street rod nationals in uh, St. Paul Minnesota and so this would have probably been the late 70s and then uh we, this was in the day of the 55 mile an hour speed limit. So if you can imagine these three cars trying to drive 55 miles an hour, you realize that was the time. And we were flying through Colorado and, and probably running much faster than 55 miles an hour. And we were running nose to tail. And we had gotten up early in the morning and we were on the highway and we'd run for a few hours and we stopped for, for breakfast. Well, we're all inside this, you know, typical truck diner that you and I have all been in a hundred times. And I look outside and I go, Pete, Pete, look. And here comes one of these Colorado, um, we call them highway patrol in California. In Colorado, they're called a state trooper. And they have that Smokey and the Bandit hat, you know, that, that, Grim, razor blade hat, and the non and the reflective sunglasses, and the tie, and the shirt. And when you look at him, you, you know everything is starched to perfection, and, and the whole thing. Plus the fact the guy must have stood six foot four, and he was this mountain of man standing out there with his foot, with these highly polished boots on. He had his foot. And I'll never forget this on on Jim Ewing's front tire. You know Jim's coupe was a high boy, and he had his foot on there, and he was just kind of standing there, and he was leaning on his, his knee on the tire, and he's just just kind of looking. Pete goes, you guys stay in here. Do not come outside, and let me go outside and talk to them. He goes sit out there to the cop, and he's there for 20, 30 minutes. Anyway, he comes back in, and he goes, okay, everybody sit down. And so if we're all listening, he said, the state trooper proceeded to point out that the speed limit is 55 miles an hour coming into the state and going out of the state. And he says, we were watching you via a helicopter. And he said, if you'd have gone more off ramp, we had you and you'd all be in jail and we'd have these cars impounded. And he went on and on and on. And of course, we're all shaken and, and Pete's, you know, and, and in hindsight, Pete's a good one for a story. He loved to embellish a little bit. So he's, he's telling us that 
guys, when we leave, the state trooper told me, says, if you go 56, we'll pull you over. If you get too close together, we're going to pull you over. He says, if you don't get out of this state as fast as you can at 55 miles an hour, we're going to pull you over. And so, you know, we, we just all ate our breakfast and got the hell out of Colorado. But, uh, you know, that was, those are the kind of things that happened. Yeah, the cars broke down, and we, we had all kinds of stories about one time when we were driving across country, we were my roadster lost the windshield, and another time where Pete got a flat, uh, not Pete, I'm sorry, Jake got a flat on the coupe, and we drove from outside of Vegas into Vegas on three tires and took the right front off, and it, it just and it wouldn't touch the ground, so we could go along on the side <laughs> of the road. <laughs> we made it. And, and then trying to find... You know, back in the day, the big thing were the Volkswagen tires, because that's what guys put on the front of the high boys in the 70s. And, of course, trying to find that tire and, you know, what a circus that was. And while that's going on, Jim Ewing, who is the king of the Wheeler dealers, is over in a stereo shop. And he's trying to get the latest Walkman that just came out so he can listen to music. And because I wouldn't share my music with him, I told him he could suffer and I would just enjoy my own Walkman and my own music. And. You know, and all of that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and, and that's that's what we did. I mean, I've, with, I've made 13 trips across country in a hot rod, and most of them have been in roadsters. And I've done it with Steve Mole, and I've done it with, you know, Ewing and Shaporis and Jake, and I've done it with, uh, you know, some of the guys from Arizona. In fact, uh, you probably know Rod Palmer. Right um, he used to have, I used to have Arizona Street Rods. Now he's, he's since closed his doors and shut down. Well, he and I drove across country once in his roadster. And, uh, you know, and it, it just goes on and on, the different people that I've done it with. And it was it was always fun. And no matter where we stop, there's always someone that comes up and says, well, I got a car just like that, or I had one just like that when I was young, <laughs> except it was green, you know, it, it, that sort of thing. But what you got out of all of this was the people just wanted, and if you would talk to them and make them feel good about, yeah, you really had one like this. That's really cool. What kind of fun did you have? And they would talk about their car. You made their day. When you went on the road, you knew you had a friend for life. So if you ever broke down, it would never be a problem, you know, in that area. And, you know, so that's, you know, that's what you do. You make friends going all the way across country. Exactly. I let you guys ask some questions. Oh, so. I'm I'm sitting here enjoying the heck great. out of this. You... <laughs> thank you, and I want to say thank you for um for for sharing your your personal insight and your story like that. That uh, that was awesome. Thank you so much. My... Yeah, yeah, it, it's um, uh, it's fun, you know. And uh, of course, most of you probably know that I was brought into the business by Tech Smith, and and uh, I spent a lot of my formative years working with Tech. Then, of course, you know, Tex went on and did his things. And then toward the end of his life, you know, he moved to Australia. And um, I actually bought one of his houses up there in Driggs. And my family and I, we've owned it for 12 years. So we go up. Still has a lot of memories and still has plenty of Tex, Texisms or Tex memorabilia around the house. So that's always fun. And, you know, I work a lot with Ron Saradano. He and I have known each other for more years than I can recall but the first time we met was back at the uh, st paul um street rod nationals and it was at the radisson which that hotel was known for having presidents and heads of states 
And here this year, they've got a bunch of street rotters in. And if you remember the time frame, you remember that's when streaking was a big deal. So now you've got a bunch of drunken pot rotters out in the parking lot running around naked. And, and this is a hotel. People, women are coming with, you know, gowns on, you know, uh, guys are in tuxedos and all this sort of stuff for formal dinners and presentations. And, and here you have a bunch of guys in t-shirts out in the parking lot, uh, doing some crazy, crazy things. And, uh, in fact, I'll never forget that same night, a police car every so often would go down between all the rows, you know, just to make their presence felt, you know, so that they knew there was police present. And he came in and he got into a row that was too tight, so he had to back up to make like a three-point turn to get around this corner. So this hot rodder is giving him backup instructions. Keep coming, keep coming. So the cop keeps backing it up. Keep coming, keep coming. Until he backs the cop right into the light pole. And he caves in the bumper of the cop, the whole thing. And the cop goes to get out. The guy vanishes in a crowd of a thousand hot rodders. So, you know, that was that. But the rest of us on the ground laughed. I mean, it's just absolute hysterics. And, uh, uh, you know, there was there were signs where guys would be in the back of pickup trucks and they'd be driving through mooning. And then somebody would hit the gas, and the guy would fall out of the back of the pickup truck, and there would be on the ground, and, of course, everybody's in hysterics. And, you know, and things don't happen like that anymore at the Street Rod Nationals, but, uh, and which is probably a good thing. It's probably much better that it doesn't. But that was 40 and 50 years ago. In fact, this coming summer, 2019, will be the 50th Street Rod Nationals, which... I just cannot comprehend that. Um, I wasn't at the first one, but I was around for the second one and then was there until the mid-80s and then missed some and then came back in the 90s. But, uh, uh, I mean, I find it hard to believe that the Street Rod Nationals have been around 50 years, which means I've been around 50 years doing this, which is absolutely absurd because I know I can't be much over, what, 30, 32 years old and, oh, easy. Uh, to be in this business for yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so to be to be 50, 50 years plus doing this is actually pretty funny. And uh, um, I know we're going to try to do a special display at the Street Rod Nationals and bring in some cars with a lot of history. And um, I know some of the guys are trying to put together some drives where we're going to drive across country. Some of the old guys, which that in itself should be hysterical watching a bunch of old guys driving hot rods across country again because i can guarantee you all of us have forgotten how uncomfortable these cars were in the 70s and they hey, those original high boys haven't gotten any better today so uh, uh it, it's pretty interesting but uh, but anyway you must have something else either another question or maybe you want to go home and have dinner <laughs> hey no i I tell you, um, Alex had put up a post um, during the Street Rod Nationals covering the uh, the flood year, and I tell you, I wonder if uh, will you guys have any of those cars on display? I'm sure there's got to be one out there that never got cleaned up after the flood. <laughs> they bought it back in the insurance company, <laughs> like the Mildew Special. I think that was ninety. Yeah, I think that was 1995, um, and I know that this. The, the Nationals have been in Louisville 22 years now, if you can believe that. And what happened, what caused that flooding, if you don't know, um, there's bark. You, you've seen decorative bark that's in planters and whatnot. Well, they had just tons of that 
on all of the planters around the, the building, the, the show hall. And the rains came so hard and fast that this, this bark just kind of lifted up and floated. And what it did is it floated over the drain. And then as soon as it plugged the drain, then the water level went from one inch deep to, who knows, you know, a couple of feet deep. And that's when the problems all started. But um, uh, hopefully they seem to have that all resolved. I don't see that happening anytime in the near future, but uh, that's all we can hope for. That's crazy. So I, I'd be really interested. I mean, we guys, we need to go on this road trip. Yeah, it would be pretty fun. I'm seeing this well, happen. The, the fun thing about anything like that, um, the, the first of these power tours, uh, Americruise, the Street Rotters Road Tour, which I'm involved with now and have been for the last 20, 23, 24 years, um, all started with Joe Mayall, who used to be the editor, who used to work with me on Rod Action, and then left that to become the editor of Street Scene. And then one day at lunch, um, Joe's office, Magoo, you know, Dick Magoograk, Magoo's Hot Rods, and the magazine were all within one block of each other. So we all had lunch at the same time, same place every day at this Mexican restaurant that always kept a table for us. And one day Joe and I were sitting there going, well, I'm going to drive back to the Nationals. And Joe goes, well, you know what? If you drive, I'll drive my car. And it was his 33 34 uh, sedan. It was a silver and black Ford sedan. And he said, um, tell you what, he says, how about I put some information in street scene and whatnot and tell people the route we're going to take and where we're stopping and let's just see who shows up. Well, I'm here to tell you there were people at every state crossing. There were people each night at the hotels where we stopped. Then they'd take us over to the local, let's call it drive-in, you know, car hop kind of deal where you can have burgers and coke to where every single night for the four days across country, um, it was incredible on, on the number of people that were all locals that would come out to, to be with the magazine guys. And there was only three or four cars of us driving across country. But each night there were several hundred of us. And that was fun. And that's when people started getting the idea, we need to expand on this. So. From that came the Americruise, and then came the Street Rider Road Tour and the Power Tour and all that sort of thing. But uh, it's been fun. It's a lot of fun. So if you guys do it, you got to publicize it because you will get a wealth of great information that you can put into podcasts. In fact, if you do a podcast each day or whatever, I mean, it could be just a hell of a lot of fun. Heck yes. So... Speaking of events and things like that, with with the dawn of like social media and people being so much more connected and everything, do you find that you still do as many uh, feature shoots at an event as you used to, or has that kind of gone the way of arranging a shoot at a studio? It's yeah. Um, well, to to answer your question directly, no, we do not shoot as many cars at events as we used to primarily because we go to so few events. We only go to about 10 events a year, and those are the ones where we have a Street Rotter Top 100 program at. But um, we now, we have guys all over the country, whether it's Robert McGaffin or Chuck Vranish or Jerry Berger or Chris Shelton. We have guys who live all over the country who are very capable photographers. 
and we have found it it we get the cars we want and it's it's reasonably affordable and it's much more timely to send a guy to where the car is and then shoot it either a on location or b if it does happen to be a car somewhat in the southern california area bring it into the studio um so to answer your question directly yeah, the way we used to shoot car features and the way we do it now is it's 180 degrees different. And in the old days, I'd go to the Street Ride Nationals, for instance, and if I didn't shoot 20 car features, people would think I was screwing around, not doing any work. We go to the Street Ride Nationals now. If we shoot one car feature, that's a big deal. And it takes, you know, four hours at sunset to get it done the way we want. Um, so we, we the cars have gotten so much nicer. And the level of photography has gotten so much better. And the photography is used in so many more places. And by that, I mean, well, of course, it goes into the magazine article, but it's used online for online stories. It's used in social media, such as Facebook. Uh, and now you may have a short video on the car on Facebook, or we may do a Facebook live program on the shooting of the car, either in the studio or on location on Facebook. So there's a lot more Let's call them tentacles, you know, or spokes to a wheel. There's just a lot more going on now when we, we tackle a car. So, uh, yeah, so, so things have changed. No, no question about it. Awesome. And thank you for answering that. Cause I, that was just one of the things that's been kind of burning a hole in the back of my head. I was like, I knew it had to change. And, you know, so I guess the next logical question while we're on show stuff, um, you know, is there a show that you look forward to? And I know this is a tough thing to say in your line of business, but is there one yeah. show that you look forward to more than another? Yeah, there. but it's probably not for the reasons you would first anticipate. Um, first off, there's a number of good shows you go to because the quality of the cars are there, and you're going to see what's going on. And, of course, that's the Grand National Roadster Show, and it's the Detroit Autorama in the wintertime. And then as far as the outdoor shows go, you can't miss with Good Guys Columbus or the NSRA Street Rod Nationals. There's just no way you're going to miss there. Right. But my personal favorite event is Shades of the Past. And that occurs the weekend after Labor Day every year. And that's held down in uh, Pigeon Forge, uh, Tennessee, which uh, the event itself is actually held at, at Dollywood, at their splash country in you know, Dollywood. And the reason that's my favorite is as far as quality of cars go, it's right there with the best. If not the best, it's right there with them. But it's the people that I meet down there for whatever the reason. It's the grouping of people that come together at that show make up the majority of my six friends. I mean, I, I get all six of them there, you know, and, and it, it's just a lot of fun. And, and it makes it much more interesting. Um, uh, and the other thing is, and, and you guys have probably noticed this, um, shows... They haven't all gone to it yet, but shows are starting to become shorter in their duration. And by that, I mean, instead of three or four day events, they're cutting down to two or three day events. And uh, we're seeing that more and more. And we're seeing Sunday being cut off. Even the Street Rod Nationals this year, I think it started last year. It used to shut off at three o'clock or later on Sunday. Now it shuts off at noon because they realize. People aren't sticking around. They give away the giveaway car on Saturday afternoon, and they know there's not going to be anyone there on Sunday. There, People want to get out. And the Shades event is a Friday-Saturday event, 
and that seems to work out just right. Now, it's a hectic, crazy two days, but people love it. They get there, they do the event, and they get out of there. And I, I think that's maybe that's a sign of the times where we want more instant gratification and things happen more quickly. Um, but that is my one personal favorite event uh, that I've been to and for years and years and years. But like I said, there, there's a half dozen major events, you know, mm-hmm. not the least of which back to the 50s or or uh, Syracuse or uh, Hot August Nights, where if you want to see a lot of cars, wow, stand back. Because these events are upwards of six to 10,000 cars easily. And you'll get your, you know, two, three days there, you'll have your fill. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the Shade Show because there was a thing that you guys started doing at the Shade Show that we I really, really like. I think the Triple Crown is awesome. Yes. And I know you were pretty instrumental in that. And each year it seems to get bigger and bigger. So what was your vision behind this when you guys decided to come up with this Triple Crown? Yeah, the, the Triple Crown of Rotting came about because a handful of builders came to me and, and they were unhappy with the way some things were going at some other events. And I said, well, don't come to me because I sure as hell have no input with any of the show promoters or, or associations or anything like that. And they said, well, why don't you come up with a, a, an award and do all of this? And I said, sure, I can do that with my other day job. You know, and um, so what happened then was, is, and it was an absolute stroke of luck. Um, I had John McLeod from Classic Instruments. I had Rick Love from Vintage Air. And I had Steve Tracy from Advanced Plating. Well, the three of them were, let's call them the mechanical tool that I needed. And uh, Bobby Alloway was I said to Bobby, I said, if we're going to do this, these guys, John McLeod went to um, the retired vice president of design from uh, Chrysler Corporation, Tom Gale. Tom designed all the trophies for us at no cost. It was just a courtesy that he did for us, which was absolutely phenomenal. And then, of course, John uh, used his, um, uh, oh, what do you call those machines now? You know, they make things out of plastic, you know, the CNC, not CNC oh, 3D machines. Printer. 3D printer? Yeah, he used his 3D equipment to to make the initial trophies and what they look like. And then um, uh, Steve Tracy did all of the putting together, chroming, et cetera, et cetera, and final assembly. And Rick Love also assisted on that. Plus, Rick made the individual awards. The big trophies go to the car owner. But the car builder gets a very nice plaque that, that each year Rick Love underwrites through um, vintage air and he gets that taken care of but it was i went to bobby i said bobby if we're going to do this i need an event and i need someone who has some cachet with the builders and i said the last thing is street rotter cannot be involved in the making of the awards or the judging of the cars or anything otherwise it becomes a political nightmare I said, Street Rider can cover it as an event, but we can't have any say as to who wins and all that sort of thing. Well, Bobby goes, I'll tell you what, we'll do it here at Shades of the Past. And we they already have their judging guys in place who are, have, you know, years and years and years of experience. And their top 25 has met with so much success that I don't think anyone would argue that those guys know what they're doing. So I said, okay. That's what we'll do. 
And Dollywood got wind of all this, and now Dollywood loves having it there. And in fact, if you were at the event, if you walked into the the, the lobby of what's called Dreammore, which is the Dollywood Resort, there was large, massive color photos that are backlit, so they look like a TV screen, of covers of Street Rotter with the triple crown cars, you know, on them. And they're very proud of the event. They have it in their publicity information. They tell everyone they support the event and they love having it there, which they do. They're very good to us each year when we need some things. So it was Bobby was able to go to the different builders. And now we've done it three times. And each time it's picked up a little momentum to where this year uh, we felt we really had the cream of the crop of what was out there. And we had other builders who came who didn't bring cars who said, you know, I came here last year and thought this was pretty good, but I didn't want to bring a car. And came back again this year, and now I know why I didn't bring my car because I would have gotten it handed to me. And he said, the competition is just too much. It, it, he says, the cars here are absolutely the cream of the best. And so we feel very good that next year this is just going to still keep building. And uh, the people, the people seem to like it at the show. They they love the way the whole thing goes down. Uh, they love the cars that are picked. Uh, the, the magazine has done very well showing the cars. And uh, Street Rider, which for a long, long time was just pre forty eight, we've gotten virtually no bite back because we had a Camaro on the cover along with a Chrysler, along with a you know a thirty two sedan, which would have been last year's. Uh, Winners, right? And I I gotta say, like, oh, anyway, I cut you off. I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to say, no. I, I was I I feel honored. I was really stoked to be part of that. I got to work with uh, Zach, who uh, Zach from Z Rods, who built the uh, the Cuda that won the inaugural Street Machine Triple Crown. And sure. um, I, sure. I gotta say, it was a highlight of my entire career to see a car that I had something to do with on the cover of that magazine, and know it was like the first muscle car to ever be in Street Router. So I'm done gushing. I'm going to oh, shut up now and go back to my corner. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and rightfully so, because we knew when the first three cars were going to get picked and they were going to be on the cover, boy, if, if these aren't three good cars, this whole thing's going to go up in a pile of smoke. And as, as the, you know, the old saying, I'll be lucky rather than good any day, we had luck on our side, and the three cars that were picked were extremely representative of what we were trying to show. You know, best street rod, best street machine, and best street cruiser. And we thought they they showed what could be done in each of the three genres, albeit to a very high degree, but this these were the best of the best. And um, to like I said, we've done it three times now, so there's been three winners in each category. And if you were to have all nine of those cars together, you could make the argument those are nine of the finest cars that have been made in the last three years. I mean, and no, I don't think anyone would argue with you. They are just spectacular cars. So uh, uh, you picked a good one to work on. That's all I can tell you, Brian. It was a fantastic car. And, And the builder was such a nice guy. I mean, he was so, he was so thankful to, for everything. And, uh, it was just a pleasure working with him. It really, really was. Yeah, not to make this a Zach show, but that that kid is um, that kid is a hundred percent sincerity. He he is the genuine article. Oh, and, you could tell that. 
and, and it goes right back to where all of this started tonight with the cars are fantastic, the cars are great, but we keep coming back because of the people. And it's because of Zach, because as I'm sure all of you guys know, we've all met people in our life that we could have just done just fine not having met ever. And one of, one of the things about the magazine business is, the truth be told is, if it wasn't for Street Rotter, no one would know my last name, all right? It's because of what I do for a day job that people feel like, okay, you know, he's the editor of Street Rotter, so if we want a new product release or we want to get a car feature or we want a texture or something like that, we got we to gotta get to him. And while there are a tremendous number of great people in this industry who I would do anything for any time, there's also a fair share, like I said, I wouldn't care if I never saw him again. And that's, I suppose, true with life in any aspect, you know. I mean, I, I suppose that's true anywhere. Right on. And it is. It, it's all about the people. And, you know, a lot of times you just know the people you're going to become friends with, like, immediately at a show. And, you oh, know, I think, well, Brad, you and I had that. You decided you didn't want to have anything to do with me after we first met. So. <laughs> and I still feel that same way. Yeah, it really yeah. hasn't changed much. Yeah. Well, yeah, see, I, I, you can feel the love in the room. You know, you can sense it. So. Now, I got a, I got a question for you, and it's, it's, it's. Um, I guess you could almost say it could make it make you create enemies doing what you're doing. But uh, when you're out here at Pomona, which is kind of Alex and my uh, myself stomping ground, we go to the Grand National every year, and that's yeah. just kind of the deal. But uh, you were a judge down there for the AMBR thing one year. Oh, I still um, am. Oh, you uh, still are, really? Yeah, I've been a judge since 2007. Okay, I didn't oh, know right. you were still a judge. Yeah. So, what, uh, guy? I don't even know how I'd ask this. What do you What do you think of the competition? I mean, it obviously changes. The style of the cars has changed, you know, from, sure. you know, from from older stuff to the billet stuff, and maybe gone back to the older stuff. Um, do you see any trends changing as far as AMBR stuff or or, uh, or anything well, like let me, that? Let me Let me give you a little behind the scenes information, which probably isn't as common to knowledge as maybe John Buck would want it to be or, <laughs> or the other judges, but John, it all stemmed from John and I were talking one day years and years ago, and he was asking, how come so few cars that win the AMBR are ending up in Street Rotter or on the cover of the magazine? Well, I had just had this conversation with Larry Jr., or who we call JR, who has since passed away, um, why weren't there more Riddler cars being recognized by any of the magazines? And I said, quite frankly, it's because the operative word in Street Rotter is street. And the cars that are winning your awards are not street-oriented. That doesn't mean they can't have the best paint. It doesn't mean they can't be the top-of-the-line build. It doesn't mean they can't be the absolute epitome. But the cars have to represent something we would like to see on the street that we could drive. And I said, the cars at that time that were winning were show cars, which is perfectly fine. You have an indoor car show. It has a set of rules. That's what you build to. That's what you go by. Well, John wanted to shake the show up. And I said, you want to shake the show up? I said, you get a set of judges who have no tie to the ISCA, who are hot rodders. And I said, you get some builders. You get some social people from the industry, you know, manufacturer or two. 
you get maybe a couple of magazine types. And I said, you let them pick what they think is the, remember, your award is the most beautiful roadster. So we're going to judge beauty and not judge ugly. We're not going to judge points because you made these modifications. We're going to give you credit if you made these modifications and it made the car look better, not just change for change sake. So John, to John's credit, he rolled the dice and he brought in a man by the name of Vic Cunningham, who has since retired as the chief judge. And Vic put together a group of original judges. And now I can't remember everyone. Remember, you're dealing with an old guy. But on that original committee was uh, Jerry Kugel, Pete Chaporis, uh, Pat Ganahl, Tom Taylor, myself, Bobby Alloway, two ISCA judges, um, and because the, John wanted some stimulus of, of order, you know, so he, he wanted some guys who knew some structure, and, and these guys did. And, um, and my gosh, I know I'm leaving someone out, but there was a couple of others. There was, there was uh, I believe, 11 judges all told. Well, that first year, if you remember, we picked squeegees, uh, or the one that Squeege built, the Black Roadster, right. um, the, th the 33 Roadster. Yep. Yep. Now, there were some people who said, and rightfully so, well, that car doesn't stack up with this other car. Just look at all the modifications and what's been done comparing this car to that car. But what those of us who stuck to our guns, our comment was, that car is not the most beautiful Roadster on the floor. We used the litmus test to this very day. If the keys for all of the cars in competition were on a table in this room, which set of keys would you pick up and go take that car home? And everyone said to a man, well, actually, it's Squeegee's cars, and, you know, the best looking one and looks like a hot rod and sits right. And that, that guys, 50, and we agreed that 51% of the judging criteria would be the most beautiful car, most beautiful roadster. And so that's how the whole thing came about, and it went that way. So what happened for the next couple of years, there was some confusion among the builders because guys were already buried in projects, how to build a car that could be competitive for America's Most Beautiful Roadster, knowing there was a, a change in the wind. There, there was a shift in dynamics. And, as, and, and you guys all know the cars that have won the last you know, five, ten years. And you can see that it's gone away from what I would have called a traditional show car to more of a, a hot rod. America's most beautiful roadster is, to me, more of a hot rod now. Now, last year, which was the closest balloting we've, we've had in years and years and years, um, some would say, well, that car kind of goes back to the old days. Well, the car that won last year was a work of art and, and the workmanship was stunning and there was no denying it and, and it deserved to win. Um, but the point is if, if you said like the year that, um, um, the 32 roadster from, um, Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting his name. He's the painter from the Bay area. Oh, uh, Hollenbeck. Hollenbeck. Yeah. Well, Hollenbeck's yeah. shoot my ass when he finds out I forgot his name. <laughs> I'll uh, edit that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but when Hollenbeck won, there were so many people that said, well, yeah, there's no getting around that that car is beautiful and stunning and put together well. But what's different about it? And we said, 
That's the point. It did not lose anything in the translation from the quintessential 32 Ford High Boy Roadster hot rod. You could look at that car today or 30 years ago and you would have loved it just as much. And I would make the argument 30 years from now, this car will stand the test of time. Now, throw in the fact that guy has driven that car the four corners of the earth in every kind of weather imaginable. Uh, it's everything that America's most beautiful roadster should be. It's a street hot rod and, uh, and beautifully done, you know, done beyond belief. It was tremendously done. So, so that's the direction the award has gone. And, and we'll see how it goes in the future. Cause frankly, I have no idea what's coming up for 2019, uh, as far as the AMBR or the grand national or excuse me, or the uh, Detroit Riddler. I would like I'll to hope it. that Chrome Rotors are going to make a comeback. <laughs> if, if, Angel hair. If you only knew the bone of contention that is. <laughs> Give me a freaking break. We all know he hasn't driven or that not. car. Freaking Rotors are thrown. And it, anyway. No, you'll start World War III. You get us going on that. That's just, that's just a bad deal. Hey, a minute ago, you mentioned uh, about the model year cutoff that Street Rider magazine had changed in their format. And, uh, you know, Street Rider magazine had been around forever. And I know that that subject kind of polarized a lot of guys when they started opening the cutoff years. And then when you guys made the transition in the magazine, did you get much pushback? I mean, I got to admit, I love it. I think it's phenomenal. I think it was a great move. And it was something that almost had to be done. And I know some, some hot rod guys may disagree with that. But it started to get to a point to where there was no place to put the 49 to 64 cars. You know, they were just they just didn't have a place to go. And you guys just kind of opened it up for them and then opened it up even farther and made a magazine that caters to a larger audience. Yeah, it's and, and, and here's where first off, everything you said was spot on. Um, totally agree with you. Um, here's where I'm going to I'm going to touch on two subjects. One, I'm going to touch on. Um, even though Hot Rod is a sister publication, all of the staffs are competitive by nature. You know, the guys at Street Rod are competitive with the guys at Hot Rod are competitive with the guys at Carcraft and, and on and on down the road. We're always trying to get the best cars. Um, in my opinion, Hot Rod disappeared from what it should have been covering in that era back at the turn of the century, back in 2000 to 2006, when we made the jump in, in 06, um, they were abandoning that era of car for favor of whatever it was, the flavor of the month, which was what they were covering then. And now, now I'm going to take you a little bit further back in time. You know, just keep that kernel in your mind. When Street Rotter was started, I was one of the original staff, which I'm sure you guys know that. Um, Tech Smith and myself and Jim Clark and Richard Bean, uh, we sat down. In fact, Dane Gingerelli was on the original staff and, and Steve Stillwell. And we talked about what should Street Rotter cover. Now, remember, we're talking 1972. So a 32 Ford was roughly 40 years old. Okay, something like that. Now, think about it. Put that in perspective today. Um we said there shouldn't be a cutoff. If you remember, the original cover of, of Rod Action had an early car on it, 
But the second cover of Street Rider magazine had a Chevy Nomad and a Volkswagen Bug on it. Um, in fact, through the through 1990, every now and then you would find a later model car of some sort would pop up. But what happened was the street rod movement in the late 70s, early 80s picked up so much steam that it actually buried the other cars. And a corporate decision was made from an advertising standpoint. We can cater to this one band of cars pre-1949, meaning 1948 and earlier cars. We don't need to cater to anything else. We can make all of our numbers, whether they be sales of magazines or advertising revenue, by just catering to this one segment. It worked great till about the mid-90s. And then there was a change in the wind. And I came on board for the second time because I left the magazine in, what, 73 or something like that, 74, the first time. I came back in 97. And when Tom Vogley hired me, one of the first things he said was, what do you think about covering later model cars? Now, he was it was a loaded question because he had no intention on changing the model year. He wanted to get a feel for me because he was interviewing me for the job um, of editor of Street Runner. And I said, you can take the money in my wallet as sure as I'm standing here right now. If we do not start covering 50s and 60s cars, we're going to fall behind the curve. We're going to fall behind the curve with the readers. We're going to fall behind the curve with the advertisers. Well, as 1997 goes through and we get to the year 2000, the largest physical magazine of Street Rider was September of 1997. It was 340 pages. And it was all, pre, yeah, all pre-1949 vehicles. Now, I can tell you this number because it was so long ago. Street Rotter topped $400,000 in a single month's worth of advertising. The first time that had ever been done with a Street Rod book in its life. Whoa. Now, for the next 10 years, there were some even bigger numbers and things did really well. But I kept telling corporate and I kept telling anyone who would listen to me, I'm telling you guys, Hot Rod isn't covering this segment. No one else is. We need to move Street Rotter into this market. We're going to catch some shit. And we're going to, you know, things are going to happen. But the reality is, this is where we need to be. Well, it wasn't but a few years later when Metters starts opening up his events to cover later model years. And it was in 2006 or thereabouts. And, of course, no one can prove this statement to be true. But I was sitting in a golf cart with Vernon Walker from the NSRA when Vernon said to me, what do you think about the NSRA going to later model, you know, having a rolling date, expanding the year of coverage? And I said, Vernon, we did it in 2006 in Street Rider. We caught some flack, but the reality is the book is growing. And it's growing because we're picking up later model readers, which also then translates into later model advertisers of product who make things for later model cars. Well, it wasn't but a couple of years later the NSRA, NSRA makes the, the swing over. And now, of course, good guys, NSRA, anyone you want to talk to, Shades of the Past. I remember when Bobby Alloway came to me and said, Brian, what do you think about Shades making the jump? Because 
the event was starting to lose a little steam. And I said, Bobby, you better do it before it tips over. I'm telling you, it's the way to go. And they did it. They are now immensely happy they did it. Um, we know that uh, Back to the 50s has always been a very successful, very well participated event. And they have been, you know, through 72 for forever, you know, as long as you can remember. And so this whole transition, which took place around 2006-ish, needed to happen. Unfortunately, as we all know, the economy took a slight dive thereabouts. And so that, that had some other repercussions. But to some degree, the economy has come back. Things seem to be better. Things seem to be moving in the right direction. Um, there was no question that taking Street Rotter and pushing the envelope. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have never stated on the pages of Street Rotter what the cutoff is. And we won't. We will continue to grow. There's an old axiom, which is what's affordable is what's buildable. So if some kid out in the middle of Salina, Kansas can find himself a square body pickup truck because no one in their right mind would ever build one, but he can get it for a hundred bucks. <laughs> that's where the trend is coming from. Yep. So when you ask me what's the new trend, frankly I'm not sure what the new trend is, but I knew it's gonna I know it's gonna keep moving forward. I know the classic truck movement which 67 to 72 Chevy pickups are on fire. Well, guess what? Now the square body trucks are on fire. The Ford pickup trucks that, that are running through as late as 87 are now being picked up. So our classic truck book is paying attention to all of that. Street Rotter is paying attention to cars up through the early 70s. And when we see the right one, we'll grab it. Uh, so I, that's the long way around the barn, but I think that answers your question. No, it, it, it does perfectly. Perfectly. Absolutely answer the question. Yes. Alex, this gives you a chance to put that Hyundai out there. Oh, finally. <laughs> okay. I didn't yeah, say. <laughs> but no, no, no. It's going it, to, it's it, the, the idea, not, not to drop the bomb on the poor guy. <laughs> the idea, remember the Zingers cars? Yeah. Sure. sure. This is just like fact, it, only with a sewing machine. He calls it his singer's right. line. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, his singer. <laughs> the, uh, it's, a, it's a Hyundai uh, with a Riviera body on it. Hey, you know, there have been some crazy things. There, there's been some crazier things down there. Yeah. But, uh, uh, no, I, um, I feel real good about the industry from where I sit, which maybe you might say is from the inside looking out, because I see how the manufacturers are doing. Uh, but one thing that that has been supported in the last couple of years, and that's we call them early cars. OK, so that would be anything prior to 1949. The early hot rods um, are I'm, I'm seeing some more life there. I'm seeing some more cars being built. I'm seeing that market coming back with a little more strength because it had been flat for 10 years prior to that. And while the classic truck. Uh, that market exploded, and the 50s and 60s cars and the muscle car and all of all of that stuff still doing great. I mean, that stuff's still doing doing great. But I'm seeing more and more early stuff being built again, and that just tells me that the industry as a whole is doing uh, very, very well. Which you know, obviously, makes me feel good, makes you guys feel good, and because Lord knows I still need a job for another five or ten years, so I got to keep going. <laughs> so. 
Well, when we land that first big sponsorship gig, uh, you, you've got an open opportunity here. So, Well, it's what you guys are doing is, is so right on because you have no limit to w- what you guys can grab. And, and you guys know the hobby. You've got the right format. Just don't get idiots like me that don't know how to Skype, and then you guys will be feeling fine. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to blame you. We're, we're going to pass it off. That's, that's a technical. That's a technical <laughs> issue. So, we but, never uh, blame you. So well, it's no. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no! Please finish. I, the last thing I want to do is no, I don't want to interrupt you. I was just going to say, um, in in this house where I live, you know, I'm I'm the big. The, you know, the big macho hot rodder in the neighborhood and everyone comes over to see all the cars we have here and all of this and all of that. But the reality is I have to go ask my wife how to use the cell phone and where are the keys to the car and I can't find this or I can't find that. And if it wasn't for her, shit, I'd still be lost in the bathroom. You know, I mean, it, it just <laughs> keeps pointing in the right direction. So it, it's, it's, there is always someone behind the scenes who has a really good story. And, and that's the one you want to find. And uh, that's, that's the one that people will listen to time and time again. Oh, and, and that's, we've been really lucky. I mean, so far our guests have always had really great behind-the-scenes stories and kind of an insight to things that you normally wouldn't think of. Well more than we bargained for. I mean, the technical issue, you know, was standing. The technical issue just adds to the humor. Because that becomes another Brian Brennan story, because you're going to eventually run across guys like Ron Serdan or whatever, and you're going to mention my name, and they're going to go, you know, there's a reason why all the screwdrivers in his toolbox are dipped in rubber, and it, 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 it's on and on and on. I mean, it's it's those are the stories that people love. I mean, that's everyone can see my high boys red, okay, and they can see it's got a small block Chevy, big deal. What they want to know is. How many times did I spill paint all over the garage floor or, you know, you know, how many times did I stick the screwdriver in the light socket instead of the plug? And, and th- those are the stories. I mean, that's what people laugh at. So how many stitches did that car cost you? Oh, it's, it, I remember, I'll never forget when I first started in Tech Smith. Now, I came from a drag racing background, so I understood performance cars and, and I was really deep into Corvettes, which... I still am. I mean, I edit that magazine on the side, aside from Street Runner. And I'd been around Corvettes all my life. And so Tex hires me and he says, you know, we're going to deal with earlier cars, probably stuff you're not used to. And he was showing me what was going on, Tom McMullen's Roadster and all that stuff. And I said, well, granted, I didn't play with these cars when I first started on the magazine. But I said, all my buddies, older brothers had cars like these. And he said, that's exactly what it is. You are a transitional. I, I was the generation that came about with the muscle car. But he says, what you're going to find out when you're writing to the street rod crowd, he says, they're going to know instantly if you're the real deal. He says, you can write a story and say, this is how you put a camshaft in. But he says, if you just tell them how to take this out and how to put that in, that's not the real deal. If you tell them when you're taking this out, make sure to not have the radiator in place because you're going to scrape the skin right off your knuckles. <laughs> now they get, now they know you've been there, and that's what they want to hear. More about the stuff guys have gone through. And and here I am, I'm going to rat out you know the younger generation of, of car guys that are working on the magazines. So many of the fellows we have on all of the books are just young and getting into it, and that's understandable. And they, 
they haven't paid their dues yet and and they haven't torn off you know several sets of layers of skin off their knuckle they just don't have that experience yet but in time in time it'll all come and they'll become much better writers and they'll be identified much more closely with their readership when they have done all of the stupid mistakes i mean if you can name a stupid mistake i can guarantee you i can tell you the time and place i did it (laughs) that would be a great (laughs) special issue (laughs) <laughs> Street Rider presents stupid mistakes and it could be like 800 pages thick <laughs> I, could, I could give you a list of stories on every state that I've broken down in I mean we're talking did you, did, uh, did you lose a fuel pump did you lose a wheel bearing did you break a windshield did the distributor give up the ghost was it the coil You know, what did you break on your car did, did the bearing freeze and now you had this go bad I mean, I have been in wrecking yards in every state across the Interstate 40. I mean, I've been in all of them, trying to piece cars together. It's just that's what you do, you know. That's that's just that's the way it so goes. Awesome. Well, well, we know what state you almost get arrested in. So yeah, you know, got that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, what, what state you're not allowed in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not the only one, boy. Yeah, we there are streaking things over there. Yeah. Oh yeah, there, there's there was so much. Uh, but see, when when I was growing up and, and being a street racer with the muscle cars and then the hot rods and all this sort of stuff, it, it was time and place. You were, you were, you know, south of the age of 30. You know, you were still young and and maybe you had been to high school and maybe some college and all that sort of stuff. But you still were involved with cars as a primary source of entertainment and something you wanted to do in life. And then, and I'm not sure when it happened, but somewhere in there, I ended up with a daughter and I ended up with a wife and I ended up with a, a house. I have broken down of going across the country. The first thing I learned was this isn't breaking down. What this is, is this is just another editorial. I mean, I'll never forget the time when Ewing and I were driving across country in his coupe and we had the little, we had just put a Buick V6 in it. This was during the gas crunch of 74 to 76 and all the Arab oil embargoes and all that. And we thought, okay, we'll put a V6 in and we'll get better mileage and everything will be great. Well, we didn't. It didn't get any better mileage in the small block Chevy. But, but we were driving across country and we got to Fort Smith, Fort, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and a motor mount broke. And the motor settles down and the fan goes into the, into the fan shroud and it sounds like all holy hell is breaking loose. And we're on the side of the road. I mean side of the road, Arkansas, it's getting night, and we're going, we are screwed. And Jim goes, nope, you just stay here and make sure no one steals the car. I'll be back. Which, if you knew Jim, you knew he was probably leaving you there, and you'd end up spending the night sleeping on the road. An hour, an hour later, he comes back with a, tow, a guy with a tow truck. They get us. They bring us into town. It's a little gas station store kind of set up. It turns out the guy that owns it was a retired California Highway Patrol officer who had finally gotten tired of California, and this, mind you, was in 1976, and had moved back to Fort Smith, Arkansas, opened up this little store and gas station. He opened up his his uh, engine bay to us and gave us all the tools, everything we needed, and while all the work was being done, of course, me being the foodie that I am, I'm inside the store getting, you know, cookies and milk and everything else I could find and I'm consuming all of that and um, 
making another set of friends. And as luck would have it, later that summer when we drove across country with Pete and Jake, we were going to the street ride Nat South. We went through the same town, made sure to stop at his gas station. All of us gassed up and they all remembered us and it was like old home week. And so every time you have an adversity, you just remember that's fodder for a new story. I mean, that, that, that's where all your stories come from. In fact, if you don't have stories to tell, you're probably a pretty boring individual. And, <laughs> and well said. And that, that's what makes everything work. Um, I, you know, I always look at it like an adventure. I, you know, I told my kids that. I, I tell, it's like if something happens, it's you know, so they get done and stuff just goes sideways. And they go, yeah, you know, it was always going down, Dad. I always thought what you said. It's an adventure. And it really is because, you know, we're going to get home. We're not going to die out here. We're going to be okay. And you go, that's some awesome stories to tell the kids or, you know, our friends or whatever. So, yeah, it's. <laughs> it's no, it, it's, it's you're, you are absolutely correct. And, and the bigger thing out of all of that is what you what you teach your kids, and this is what I tried to teach my daughter, when these things happen, you become self-reliant. So now this is a lesson you're going to use later on in life. You know, you know, sometimes life's not always a bowl of cherries. Every now and then you're stuck with the pits. And, and you've got to learn how to overcome adversity. And trust me, if you want to know how to overcome adversity, be on the road with a bunch of hot rodders with cars that break down. <laughs> Those guys can get out of anything. There's no doubt in my mind. They can get out of anything. I think I think that would be an important way to uh, maybe get hot rodding a little bit more into the curriculum in schools these days. Maybe we need to approach it from that side and say, hey, look, it, it's not just about cars. It's not just about having you know mechanical skills. It's really a hot rod is life skills on four wheels. I mean, you're you're absolutely correct. And it's awesome because you teach, you learn how to be very, very creative as far as using anything you can as a tool. Um, sometimes you are a tool, but you know, hey, that happens. <laughs> That's my life. You learn to budget your money. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yes. Budgeting, you learn interpersonal relationships, intrapersonal relationships. Um, man, Pro you, problem solving. Exactly. Yeah. Emotional control sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it. <laughs> You're, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, uh, we all have seen or been involved with some sort of road rage. We all understand what that is. <laughs> but when you're in a hot rod, it comes to a whole new level because you're paranoid you got this car out. And then someone who you think's an idiot cuts you off. And, and boy, let me tell you, self-restraint can go a long way. And if, if you just learn that, and uh, and I have always said that being a hot rodder is one of the great lessons in life. It, it just teaches you so many things that you can use in many, many other facets. And now I have mastered the science of buying high and selling low. But I know, <laughs> I know there's a number of guys who have figured out how to build something and turn it for a profit so they can go build the next thing. And, and that's, that, they translate that into houses, uh, into all sorts of things. So it's all a good thing to know. That and, and the lost art of bartering, that seems to have oh. kind of, it went away for quite a while. I see it, I'm glad to see it kind of come back because that is, to me, that's the most fun of hot rodding. You know, it's, it's uh, that, I know a dude who knows a dude who has the part that you need. <laughs> oh, it's, you're absolutely right. Um, I always love to tell the story about how Jim Ewing painted his hot rod 
Um, the the same man who painted Jake Jacobs' coupe and the California kid also painted Jim Ewing's car. And Jim wanted, he knew he wanted bright orange color. And this was back in the days of lacquer paint and, and whatnot. And, um, and it, it was, you know, for the time it was expensive, whatever it was. But Jim goes, we got to go find some paint. We go to the Army-Navy surplus. And if, if, if I say to you, uh, target orange. I know the color. Okay. (laughs) I'm in aerospace. Yeah. I know the color. (laughs) Okay. That's what Ewing painted his coupe the first time around. 34 orange. Yeah. And we got it for a dollar a gallon and we brought them 12 (laughs) gallons of paint. When Jim, when Jim died 20, 30 or whatever it was years later, there was still gallons of that orange paint in his garage. And that's where it came from. But Jim was the king of wheeler dealers. And, and that's, while I am absolutely terrible at it, I get the principle and I know how it's supposed to work. And I watched Jim and I was always in awe of his abilities to wheel and deal. Uh, because you are absolutely right. I've got this one wheel that I can't use, but you've got two pistons that i need you know so how are we going to make this work you know and how many great networks of friends start that way you know oh he's a guy that i met when i traded him you know a a dropped axle for a couple intake manifolds oh sure absolutely stories yep so one of the things though and then i'll shut up and let you ask your question but one of the things that i've found that's happening with bartering nowadays Parts and pieces have become too valuable, and uh, if if you if you wheel and deal it all with Ford flathead stuff, you know that is a, I mean that's akin to gold. And in the old days, you never thought twice about wheeling and dealing and moving flathead parts left and right and trading for this and that. And that's one of the things that I've seen. Guys have become too savvy if there is such a thing. They they know what stuff is worth. And sometimes it, it, it just makes it a little bit more difficult to try to wheel and deal like the old days. Right on. And, yeah, and I think I think another thing that's kind of missing too is that ability to go digging through the wrecking yards to go get parts and things like that. And well, wrecking yards aren't what they used to be now because now an, an ancient thing in a wrecking yard is something made in the eighties. So that part is kind of kind of uh, leaving us rapidly, but there was a time when you, know, you needed something and you researched it and maybe read one of your articles in Street Rotter and we went diving into the wrecking yard to go find the part. No, you're absolutely correct. And all of us, regardless of our age, we all grew up and a small block Chevy was something that was always made and you could always find one in the wrecking yard and it is what it is. You, you could always find one. Do you realize... The LS motor, the motor that replaced the small block Chevy, has come and gone. They don't make it anymore. I mean, it, it's, it had a 20-year life expectancy. It came and went. And, and that's what makes hunting around in wrecking yards a little bit more difficult. Now, if you want to go into a wrecking yard and find some power seats or some sort of accessory or something, that's still doable. But boy, if it's something under the hood, it better come with a computer and you better know how to use it. Yeah, for sure. Thinking along those lines, obviously we're looking more toward the future now. 
where do you see this headed, especially as far as youth involvement goes? Because this, this is a very hot topic in our group. We talk about this a lot, and we have a lot of plans to try to keep the youth involved and get more young people involved in this. Because, I mean, we don't want to see what is, I mean, granted, we're jaded, but what is definitely the greatest hobby in all the universe, we don't want to see this go to wa- you know, go to waste or go by the way or anything like that. Where where do you see this headed as far as youth involvement goes, and you know what are your hopes for it? Well, it, it's it, you're asking the million dollar question, okay? I figured, I figured. And, and I can tell you, they were asking this same question in 1976. They were going, how this? And I can I can remember the questions with Deuce Roy, you know the the Deuce Factory, Roy Fiestad. Jim Ewing and Pete and Jake, all of us sitting at a local diner talking about, okay, if we invest our personal money in these products we've got, what is the snowball's chance in hell we're ever going to get our money back? And what's the future of all this? How are we going to get guys to do this? And that has been the basic question since the beginning of time. And, and what I always tell people, you have to understand Please understand, today's kids do not want to build the cars their dads have. Okay? Right. Yes, there are exceptions. I get it. But as a whole, this is why there were tuner cars, why that was popular. This is why the classic truck market became popular. This is why the resurgence in the Mustang and the Camaro, not the old Mustang and Camaros, but the new Mustangs and Camaros. Because a kid can actually get a car easier on a payment plan than he can to go out and spend 20 grand or 25 grand for a really nice Camaro, you know, a a Gen 1 or Gen 2 Camaro. Um, So what I tell people is don't worry about the youth. The youth are either going to find something they like and will come into our hobby through their door, or they're not. And and they go, well, that's kind of a defeatist attitude. I said, no. I said, what you have to understand is nothing lasts forever. And now, none of you lives in the Southern California area, but am I correct? Or, or do no. one of you? Okay. Uh, two of us. Alex and oh. I both are. Yeah, we're both. Oh, okay. Then you know ports like the Long Beach Port or the L.A. Harbor, they have become uh, smog-free zones, and you have to drive clean diesel trucks or commercial vehicles down there. It is only a matter of time before certain areas of L.A. are going to be electric vehicle only or ride share vehicles only or 100 percent emissions free. Uh, You know, emissions free vehicles are going to be allowed. And so there is going to be a shift in the climate. And and just like everyone used to have horse and buggies, I mean, that that shifted out and things changed. And hot rodding is going to change. And if you're worried about the young kids. Just go look at what they can do. And I'm telling you, it's what they can find that's affordable. And that's why the classic truck market just exploded. And it allowed those guys to build those trucks. Now, if some of those guys are liking early cars, and now they have a little money to go try an early car, that's great. One thing that I'm seeing happen is my generation. I'm probably the oldest one on this phone call. Um, I am finding guys my age who think their roadster's worth, and I'm just throwing numbers out there, who thinks their roadster's worth 125 grand and I won't take a dime less than 95. 
well, you're full <laughs> of crap. You're never going to get it. Then you pass away. And now your wife is stuck with this roadster that she doesn't want. The grandkids don't want it because they don't know what it is. They don't care about it. So now someone's friend, one of your husband's friends says, well, if you just want the cash and you want to move it, put it up for 25 grand and someone's going to give you cash and you'll have cash in your pocket and you'll have this out of your life. I am seeing more and more of that happening. I am seeing elder hot rodders who are passing away and their cars are going up for sale for a fraction of what they would have cost to build. And I'm seeing now, to me, a younger hot rodder, you have to understand my perspective, a younger hot rodder is someone in his mid-30s to mid-40s. I'm seeing guys with enough money to buy these cars for twenty-five grand that are easily $80,000, cars, but they will never bring that money. They now spend twenty-five grand. They have more car than they could have ever built. Now, over time, they can afford to change the gauges, to change the wheels and tires, maybe to put air conditioning in. They can now have money to make this car theirs. I don't see them going out and buying a Brookville Roadster body brand new. Of course, there's still going to be Roadster bodies sold. But that's not really what's going to save this industry. What's going to save the industry is the older guys finally going to pasture and letting these cars loose. Now, they can let them loose before they pass away, or they can let their wives deal with it. But they're going to let these cars go for fractions on the dollar, and this is what's going to allow younger guys who always thought, you know, a 32 coupe might be kind of cool. It's going to allow them to get into it, and that's that's what I see happening. And I also see the restorers. Um, I constantly am seeing 10-year-old restorations of whatever being purchased, and the guy takes the body and the interior and drops it on a hot rod chassis and leaves the paint in the interior alone, but now he's got a hot rod underneath and he's perfectly happy. And we're seeing that happening more and more. And that's how I see younger guys getting into this hobby in the future. They're going to expand in cars that we would have never wanted to build, or they're going to buy our cars when the time is available. And they're going to be able to pay pennies on the dollar for them. So that, that's what I see happening. Wow. And uh, man, that answered that one, didn't it? Yeah, that did. And you know, it, at first I was thinking, okay, well this would hurt the industry because you know, you get these cars selling for, you know, pennies on the dollar and you start to think, okay, it, it lowers that perceived value of a car, but then you really brought it back around and in a way, that does nothing but strengthen the industry because now you've got this guy, like you said, who's changing this car to suit his needs. This brings forth, you know, he's going to go out into the market. He's going to look for aftermarket parts companies that are making the things he wants. So yeah. in, in a way, this is great. I I totally see your point. I guess any worry should really just kind of go away and we should just sit back and enjoy the, you know, the hobby and the industry for what it is. Well, that's, that's what I... That's what I tell manufacturers when I talk to them, and, and we'll have these, uh, like the MPMC show, where we have these one-on-one -on -one conversations, mm -hmm. and they, they'll ask for my insight. And, and, and you, you made the point very well yourself. You grasped what I was saying in that, let's say I'm John McLeod at Classic Instruments. I'm going to sell a set of gauges. In all reality, I could care less if it's a new car you're building 
or it's a 30-year-old car that you're just outfitting it with new gauges. You still purchased a set of gauges from me in today's time and dollar value. So I'm thrilled to death. And what you now realize is, wait a minute, he took a car that wasn't being used, is now being recycled, and now there will come a time when this guy will sell the car for more money than he paid, hopefully, but it will it still won't be for what the car might have been originally, and it's going to allow someone else to get into it, and he's going to move on to his next car. It it all works. I mean, the only time it doesn't work is if people stop buying parts. And the way you stop them, or the way you make them keep buying parts is however it takes to keep the car in circulation, that's what you do. Right on. See, this is awesome. This is this is a conversation I, I've wanted to have for a long time. And your insight and experience in this is just well above and beyond what I could have hoped for. Thank you. Oh, it, it, it was, it's, you know, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and, and, just keep asking questions, or if you guys want to go home and have dinner and go, man, that old man would talk all night long. <laughs> well, then, I got, you know, I got a question. I, I got a yeah. question that's not car related, but it's still okay. part of your deal. I, I want to talk about your NFL career. Well, it's not NFL. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not NFL. No, I, I retired from college officiating. That's true. But I have done high school in Southern California here, high school officiating for 45 years. This is oh. my 45th oh. season. Wow. And the picture you're probably referring to, you might have seen on my Facebook page. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner, it says Fox Sports. And what that was was last year I did a nationally televised high school football game. And uh, and my wife, who was sitting here watching it, happened to have her cell phone in her hand, and she caught that picture. And uh, uh, so you have her to blame for that. But, uh, no, I've uh, – I. I used to be a soccer official, um, uh, did a little bit of baseball, but football has stuck with me all my life. And in fact, I have a game this coming Friday night, you know, so it's, uh, just keep doing them. So you're in pretty good shape for an old guy, then I wouldn't want to run with you. Well, understand good shape is relative. <laughs> when you put the, when you put the context of good shape for an old fart, yes. <laughs> when, when you try to say, Good shape in the context of the athletes that are on the field? No, no, no. We're we're not. That's laughable. I mean, I you know, the uh, I always tell the guys when I'm standing out there in the huddle and there'll be a timeout or something, and I tell the quarterback, I said, you know what my job is, and he goes, what? And he says, it's my job to make sure nothing happens to you. That's the only thing I watch at is the quarterback. And he goes, oh man, that's great. Now here's your job. You tell those linemen that are standing in front of you that the first guy that runs through here and knocks me down, you're the next one to go down. <laughs> and so he immediately tells his lineman, protect the rep. <laughs> and, uh, and at the start of the game, there's a ritual we go through. But one of the things we have to do is we have to talk to the team trainer and doctors on both sides. And we go through some protocols. If this happens, we'll do this. If this, ha you know, And so we go through all that. And one of the things, invariably – at least in high school football here in Southern California, team trainers seem to be women. The, the vast majority are women. And so there'll be some young girl who's, and I say she's young, she's in her 20s. She's got a college degree and whatnot, but she's a trainer here at the local high school. And I'll always tell her, I said, 
you know what your number one job is? She goes, well, yeah, I'm going to, when there's an injured player, I'm going to run out there and this and that. And I said, no, 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 no. Your number one job is to watch me. If I go on the ground, I don't care what you have to do. You come hell or high water. You come out there and take care of game. And they always get a laugh out of that. They just love that. So, but yeah, I've done it for a long time. So obviously you, you've got quite a history of football. Like when did you start playing? Did you, did you play like Pop Warner as a kid? No, I, I started with the typical stuff, you know, high school football and, and, um, uh, and then they didn't have college football at the, I went to the university of California at Fullerton and we did not have college football until my junior year. And at that point I decided nah, I was too old and frail. I wasn't going to get into that. So I, I didn't, I didn't play any college ball. Um, but I'd always been involved in sports. I mean, I was a competitive cyclist for most of my life. Uh, I competitive as a canoeist, you know, on the ocean, that sort of thing, you know, paddling out riggers, canoes, that sort of thing. And then, um, and, and yeah, in fact, that's how I met my wife was paddling out riggers in Hawaii doing the Hawaii race over there, the, the race between the islands oh. and, uh, uh, you know, do it. I was always competitive. I was always doing some sort of sports and liked it. And one day I just read an article about football officiating. I said, yeah, you know, I'd like to do that. And I was working, um, we hadn't even started Street Rotter yet. I was working on Street Chopper magazine at the time uh, for McMullen and Tech Smith and went down there and filled out the paperwork, uh, became an official. And that was back in 1971, I think it was. And, uh, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. I've just been involved with it, you know, for a long, long time. So you're you're really just a glutton for punishment then. So you, you like yeah. putting on the the black and white striped shirt and getting yelled at by fans. And yep. then you go to work and you have to read letters to the editor. And deal with that too. <laughs> There's one thing you can take to the bank about the magazine business. And that's, and I've said this to all of my guys and, and, and I've been very fortunate in that I have nine, 10 guys that work for me for the different books. And most of them have been with me a long time. I've got a couple of young guys and I, and I always tell the young guys, I said, here's the way this is going to work. We're all a team. There's the production department and there's the advertising department. There's editorial. There's corporate. We're a giant team. And that's what makes this all go forward. And it all works until something goes wrong. And then it's always editorial fault. And no one on any other department is they don't know us. They have no idea what happened, but it had to have been their fault. But if it goes good, they were part of the team. And that's just the way it is. We are on, a, on an island. And there's no doubt about it. So if you were to put that in dealership terms, like for somebody who works in an auto dealership, you are the parts department of the editorial world. You know, the magazine oh, yeah. world where, you know, everything's <laughs> yep. your fault no matter what it was. That's, that's, sure. Gosh, sure. that's horrible. Yeah, it, it's, I can't tell you how many times <clears throat> everyone will get all excited about a magazine cover and, oh, this is going to do great and it comes out and it's the worst cover of the year. It's crickets. <laughs> I can't find anyone in the building who even knows my name, and, but God help them if the phone rings and an advertiser goes, that's the greatest story we've ever seen. Well, the ad department's the first one to go, well, yeah, you know, we were part of it. We told editorial, we thought this would be a good idea, you know, and so after a while, you just learn to roll with it and you just keep going. Of course. 
Now, before I ask the next question, I, I wanted to tell you at some point, though, um, I want to thank you for all the time that you've been at the helm of, like, Street Router. I was fortunate to have a lot of my work published in the magazine you know, for, like, Dream Cars of the Month and things like that. Sure. I, I just, I want to thank you for that. There were a lot of opportunities that were presented, and you apparently were nice enough at some point not to look at my stuff and go, well, that's garbage. <laughs> And throw it on the floor. No, so. no, 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 no. You, you, you've got to call it. You know, call it like it is. And and you're a, a tremendous artist. And it, we, we always looked at it as here is something that is going to add value to the book. And the way you determine if it's going to add value to the book, you put yourself in the reader's place and you go, would we have some readers who would get a kick out of seeing this? And of course, the answer was always yes. And if the answer is yes, then you run with it. And uh, no, no, it, it's it's been fantastic. You're you are you are you are fainting praise here. You're you're playing yourself down. You know you you're cutting yourself short. You're, you're absolutely a fantastic artist. Well, well, thank you. That that from the bottom of my heart, that means that I'm speechless. I uh, I, I do want to say though, on behalf of you know all the other artists, and if you guys have a problem with this, you can write to me. I just wanted to thank you from all of us for those opportunities that we were given that, um, that that was really great to play a part in, you know, the industry, you know, doing what we do and bringing our visions to life. I think you, uh, you really gave a lot of guys a great start. Well, it's, it's been a lot of fun and, um, there's been a number of guys who I gave them their first jobs and they've gone up and they're either still in the business or doing something else in the business. But, you know, they always come back and they always talk about when we first started and how much fun it was. And mm-hmm. uh, and it's just because that's the way it started for me. I mean, Tech Smith came to me and gave me my start. And I mean, when you look at it, and you stop and realize from that job came my family and my house and my well-being and a life and all my hot rods and toys and all the crazy things I've had since then all started because some guy gave me a shot, you know, I mean. He didn't have to, but he did. Exactly. Well, thanks for that. Well, um, so I, I guess the <clears throat> question I was leading into before, uh, speaking of magazine covers, do you have an all-time favorite cover that you've ever put out? Yeah, you know, it's, I, I get that question asked a lot. And um, I always tell, well, there's absolutely no doubt it's the issue that has my car on the cover. But uh, <laughs> now... Realizing that people will see right through that, um, no, I don't think I could say I have a favorite cover uh, because there's been so many covers and and some covers meant different things at different times, you know. So, right. so that that was you know that always you know plays into it. So it would be very difficult for me to to pick one cover, and then of course now you have to be magazine specific because yeah, yeah, you realize I've edited just a dozen different books and so now are you talking Corvettes or Hot Rods or Classic Trucks or Street Machines or you know now we start getting into that whole thing um, so it, it'd be tough to say there's any one cover but I can tell you the type of cover that gives me the most satisfaction and that's when the person who owns the car takes the time to, of course, in the old days, you wrote a letter. That doesn't happen anymore. Now everything is email or text. Um, if the person takes the time now to email me 
or even call me and say, wow, I, I'm sitting here looking at the magazine and I never thought this would happen. And this is the greatest thing that could have possibly happened. And, and my wife's excited and my kids are excited and all the guys at work think this is neat. Those are the best covers. Um, because there's been a number of covers where five minutes after it appears on the magazine, the guy wouldn't know my name if I was standing in front of him. Uh, it's, it's just human nature. You know, it's some, some people appreciate when you do something for them and other people expect things to be done for them. And, uh, uh, and, and as you can probably guess, when you're on my side of the business, I deal with a lot of people who do this professionally. This isn't a hobby. They're professional builders or, or manufacturers, and this is a money deal. So getting the car on the cover isn't so much personal satisfaction as it is a means to an end. Does that make sense? In, oh, in my, 100% you know? having dealt yeah. with a lot of sponsorship deals and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that that's, I think that's a whole different world. That is... Yeah, I think that's the two extremes. You get the guy who built the car in his garage and flips out because, you know, his car made it into reader's rides in a postage stamp size picture somewhere at the bottom, you know, oh, the, I, the binding side I, of... I, I can't even tell you how many letters and emails I've gotten over the years when a guy goes, oh, man, I just wanted to thank you. You ran a picture of my car in the magazine, and I'll write back, okay, uh, which car was it? Oh, we'll go to the Nationals coverage on the third page, the photo in the lower left hand, and I'm looking at a 32 high boy. I'm the car that's two cars behind that to keep just <laughs> That guy is happy because of that, and you go, you know, I, I wish I'd have known. It could have just as easily run your car as this other car. You know, those are the people. It's um, when when people call up, who are who you dealt with them through the whole process it's their car and they're excited about it and they're in the studio or they're on the grounds and you take the photos and then they call you as opposed to the guy who owns the car but he didn't bring it to the studio or he wasn't at the fairgrounds you know it was the builder who dealt with the car and you know i mean you'd be sad to hear how many cars we photographed and we never met the owner never met him wow. and uh, we have to have a signed release and how many times the builder will go, well, I'm just going to sign it for the owner. And I'm going to go, well, if, if you can, it really should be signed by the owner. But uh, it, it, it's, it's a sad thing. Um, uh, it, and it's one of the things where I wish I had more control over knowing what the guys like who owns a particular car that we would like to photograph ahead of time because that would have a bigger <laughs> impact on whose cars I picked and whose cars didn't pick. Um, because it, it's no fun, you know, going through all this effort for a guy who's a horse's ass. I mean, that, that's just putting it bluntly. It just, it just isn't any fun. I don't know how many other guys would do it, but I would totally buy the, the owner merit issue. Yes. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. It's uh and I know you've run across it. You you had to have had to deal with this with artwork situations and whatnot. Never. You know. Everyone is beautiful and wonderful oh. and thankful. Well, clearly, you have a <laughs> nicer clientele than I do. So, 
So congratulations. You give him credit where it's due. They're wonderful about that. Oh, some of them are great with that, not mentioning names. Okay. (laughs) Very good. I know there's got to be an inside joke floating around in there somewhere. We could talk about that off the air. (laughs) All right. But, man, I don't want to take your whole night from you. I, I, I do want to thank you, and I would love to have you back on. No doubt. And, and, oh, that's yeah, that's not a problem. And without and, a doubt, you're gonna be in Vegas the end of uh, October. <laughs> yeah, we'll be at the SEMA show. And um, uh, if uh, you guys are doing anything there at the SEMA show, let me know. We'll carve we, out. We are. We are. We will. Uh, I tell you, we'll, we'll all hang out in the media center. We'll. Um, I'll, I'll try not to spill coffee on anyone. It'll be fun. Sure. Sure. Hell, maybe I will spill yeah. coffee on somebody. You point out one of the guys who didn't appreciate having their car in the yeah. magazine. I'll just spill coffee on them. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's that's premeditated. Uh... Hang on. <laughs> no, no, no. It'll, it'll all be good. But, uh, no, I, I show up at SEMA on Monday. I fly in. I think the show starts on Tuesday. And uh, I leave Thursday morning sometimes. So I'm there Tuesday and Wednesday. And if, if you guys are set up or you've got something going, just try to give me as much time as I can, or, or, not time, as much advance warning as you can, because what happens is, is um, uh, I'm the dog and pony show. The, the advertisers or the advertising staff drag me around to all of the advertisers, and we do dog and pony shows. And so they carve out times. We have calendars, and we fill in time on a calendar. So uh, uh, as soon as you know something and, and you when you get done, going back and editing through this and go, holy shit, he's nuts. Or, yeah, let's have him again. Um, then just give me a, a time frame and we'll carve out some time. Right on. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Well, thanks for thanks for putting up with the tech gremlins and, and, and oh, us. <laughs> yes, thank you, sir. You, that, was, yeah. <laughs> that was very patient on your part. No, no, no. It, it was all very fun and the time's going to come here in the near future when I'll finally have my podcast uh, up and running, uh, you know, so that's going to be fun. And maybe I'll drag your butts onto it and then we'll interview you guys and we'll, we'll go from there. So how's that? That'd be awesome. I would be honored. And keep oh. us posted when that comes out because we'll do everything we can to put the word out for, you know, yeah. for Absolutely. our listeners and whatever we can do to help you. Oh, I appreciate that. I, uh, I do. And, um, when you have this all edited up and ready to go, let me know. And if you'd like, I can throw a news item in the magazine or online that says, "Hey, go listen to this." If you really want to, if you really want to get some dirt on Brennan, go listen to this. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, that'd be awesome. Thank you, and I'll wow. definitely do yes. that. Well, I'll, I'll get in touch okay. with you. Okay, no I problem. Won't, I won't do it via Skype because, well, we know how that works. <laughs> Yeah, just email me. It's so much easier. So. We'll tell you. We'll tell your wife oh. on Skype. She'll let you know. Yeah. We're going to put Brad in a half shirt and some cutoff jeans and have him do it in semaphore. So, well, I'd like that. That's good. Hey. <laughs> Why is it always me? Because you're the one who knows semaphore. Oh well. Well, thank thank you again, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Very much for being on. Oh, here. you're very welcome. Super awesome. Super. Yep. Thank okay. you so much. You're welcome. Pleasure. You uh, have a great night, sir. We'll talk to you too. soon. Okay, guys. Thank you very much. Thank All you. Right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 
huge thanks to uh to brian brenner for joining us got any thoughts man because my brain is burnt (laughs) i i love i love when we get we've we've had some really amazing guests on and uh, he's one of those guys that every time he said something i learned something new you go okay that was a question i was going to ask and he answered it with more than i thought he was even gonna even gonna do so yeah he was quite an awesome guy um that yeah stories and being the guy who's like right in the middle of everything man yeah he was part of everything and it's just, really cool. I had no idea he drove I me. Mean, he drove roadsters across country. How many times? And you go, holy crap! This guy is awesome. Yeah, we say thirteen times, and here, here's the part that gets me the most. Think about how many people out there have read the magazine for so many years and are going to listen to this episode and maybe for the first time hear his voice. I had no idea. I have honestly had no idea. That guy is truly a wealth of knowledge. He's been paying attention for the last forty years in the high rod world. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say this lightly. I'm going to say that guy's a treasure in our, our hobby and industry. Yep, absolutely. God, it's, it's going to really suck when they have Nicolas Cage play him in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you know it'll be bad going in, so you know won't be any letdowns or anything. Yeah, but that, that, then you can, then, I think that's going to be one of those movies you can go, yeah, but the story was so good. So. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> It's always the story. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Well, hey, thank you again, uh, Mr. Brian Brennan. Um, We look forward to it. And when his podcast launches, uh, his barn finds, we will definitely keep you guys posted on how to get to that. And I I hope that uh, we'll be bringing you a whole lot more of Brian from the SEMA show floor and even further beyond that. Hey, thanks again for listening. Uh, yeah, I'm still Brian. I am definitely still Brad. And I am Alex. Thanks again for listening. And be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram, and be sure to check out all of our latest videos on youtube.com.